Well, thanks, Derek. Uh, this is going to be my introduction before the introduction. Uh, I'm probably not going to teach on some things that you would probably want me to teach on. There are so many things going on in these short eight verses uh, that you will probably want to ask me questions. Well, who the heck are these people? And what are these things? And how, are the, how did that happen? That's not what my sermon's going to be about, because that's not what the text is about. They may be actors in this scene, but they are not the main thing. Uh, of what's going on. In fact, it's, it's not them at all that's the most important thing of what's going on. It's what they do. And so as we turn our attention uh, to God's Word, I just want to give that as a uh, don't go away from this sermon disappointed because I don't give an etymological uh, in-depth study on who the Nephilim are because, spoiler alert, they're really not even the coolest people in this passage. It's the sons of God that are the more interesting beings of this passage, but that could be a question of a whole other sort. So let me get to the task at hand. God's word here in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. I want to set this scene for you as we enter our time. Two men were having breakfast early one morning. While one sipped on his coffee, the other read his newspaper. Headline after headline, the gentleman shared remorse for the way the world was headed. Can you believe this? The man said. This would never have happened back then. The other agreed. I can't remember a time in my life that this has been this bad. Again, the other nodded in agreement. This morning, as we turn to God's word, I think we'll see a time and an occasion that actually would refute these men. A time of rampant sin and judgment. A time that has perhaps never been seen except for in the story that we see in Genesis chapter 6. As I was studying this, uh, there's a study that recently has come out asking those in the United States how they think the morality of people in the United States is either uh, progressing in becoming more moral or uh, regressing and becoming less moral. I don't think I need to tell you the results of the study, but an overwhelming majority from early 2003-2004 all the way up until 2019 most recently, uh, anywhere between 77 and 82% say we're getting less moral. That might not be arguable, But again, Genesis 6, 1 through 8, in what Derek just read, shows us that there has, in fact, been worse time in our history. So much worse that God is said of himself to regret, to be saddened by the fact that he ever made creation. For those of you who are parents or grandparents or great-grandparents, there are certainly times where our children or perhaps our grandchildren or great-grandchildren or anybody in any relationship can feel either disrespected or wronged in one way, and there's a sense of regret. Perhaps we've all heard that uh, illustrious saying, I'm not mad at you, 
I'm just disappointed. And how that cuts to the heart. Here, God himself says, in his disappointment, in his sadness, in his regret and grief, that he wished he would have never done these things. So before we dive straight into this text, let's just recap a little bit of where we've been. Derek shared from Colossians 3 last week. Thanks again for doing that on uh, shorter notice than any pastor would like, uh, but I appreciate you for taking up the mantle uh, in doing that. Uh, until I got up here to preach this morning, you and I had preached the same amount of sermons in 2022, so <laughs> I just want you to know I appreciate that fact. Uh, and know there will be many more, uh, but hopefully not a 50-50 split. I think you would agree. Uh, grateful for, for your, your service to our folks in the Word. Uh, but as he took us into Colossians chapter 3 to look at the, the heart of worship and, and all of those things that flow out from a heart that's been transformed by the gospel of Christ, we're going to get back into Genesis. So I want to give just an overview of where we've been. And if you've been joining us in Sunday school, we've been overviewing at light speed pace uh, to where we've already wrapped up Genesis and we're week two. Uh, so uh, join us for that. It's, it's awesome. I uh, would invite you to partake in that at 930 Sunday mornings. But uh, Genesis chapter one and two, we see God create uh, everything. You don't have to go through a list of all the things he created. Anything and everything that we see and don't see, God created when he spoke it into being. The things that were not became uh, at the power of his word. Then we saw very quickly after God created, we see the fall that Adam and Eve, Eve being deceived by the serpent, takes upon herself. She sees what is good and pleasing to the eye and she takes and eats of the fruit that God had commanded. It wasn't, oh man, I can't believe you had a pomegranate and not of this. No, God had commanded explicitly, don't take of this fruit. And they rebelled, seeking to get of themselves more of a divine characteristic uh, that was not due them. God had already told them, you have dominion over everything. Yet they still took at the deception of the serpent. Then in chapter 4, we see how sin continues this dreadful spiral in the introduction of Cain and Abel. You're like, oh, wow, Adam and Eve making uh, little humans, and they're, they're doing what God said, be fruitful and multiply. And then shortly after, you see Cain murders Abel for the sacrifice that Abel brought was more pleasing uh, to the Lord. And Cain uh, took it on himself uh, to seek vengeance. And we see the line of Cain then going into uh, the, the proclamation of the sword song of Lamech, where he says, the curse of Cain, it's going to be like nothing, small potatoes versus what I'm going to do if somebody wrongs me. Then we saw uh, just two weeks ago, uh, the line from Adam to Noah in chapter 5 and then here this morning, kind of an introduction to this flood narrative of introducing Noah as this man of God, this righteous, shining beacon of hope in a dark and desolate um, world. So what we see this morning in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, is rampant unrighteousness and the favor of God. Rampant unrighteousness and the favor of God. The main idea this morning is that God provides grace 
even amidst rampant sin and unrighteousness. God provides grace even amidst rampant sin and unrighteousness. Even at this point in Genesis chapter 6, we should know this to be true. Adam and Eve took of the fruit and they, what? It was revealed to them that they were naked and they were ashamed and they hid. What does God do? He goes and seeks them. He calls them out. He clothes them and brings them to himself. God is good and wise and loving and showers grace upon grace to unworthy creatures. That's the beauty of grace. As one pastor would say, it's totally unfair. And that's true. That there is not a single person deserving of God's grace. And that's what makes it such. Grace is unmerited. That it's totally on the action of God and not on the action of us. So from this text, I want you to see that in the face of rampant sin, God is unrelenting in justice to punish sinners and is also unrelenting in grace to save them. That in the face of rampant sin, God is unrelenting in justice to punish sinners and also unrelenting in grace to save them. We need to hold this tension in, in view here. We, we could say, well, God is love, so he's not going to cast judgment on anybody. That's, the not, that, that's not the God of the Bible. So while we'll see in these first seven verses of Genesis chapter 6, there is rampant sin that God casts grave pronouncement of judgment on them. But in the midst of even that, He shows an unrelenting grace to save sinners. And that's true of us. No matter what our backstory is, if we've come to trust in Christ, we know that there is a point in our life where there was a recognition, a clear recognition, I'm a sinner and God is holy. Now that might be on a two-year-old's level, that might be on an eight-year-old's level, but there is some type of experiential understanding. God is up here. And I am down here and realizing there's nothing that I can do to get up there. He must come down and he does so by his grace. So we see rampant unrighteousness deserves judgment. Verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7. At first glance, we may be tempted to look at the introduction of Genesis chapter 6 and say, wow, this is... This is, this is fine. The humanity is growing and flourishing and they're keeping with the mandate that was given in the garden. Like, this is a good, this is a good thing. Let's get to Genesis uh, 6, verse 2. So when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Right there in Genesis uh, 6, verse 2, we're kind of like... Something in the way this story is being told doesn't seem like it's going to go right. I don't know what it is, but my antenna is just kind of going off a little bit. But maybe we'll just hang on. Maybe it'll get better. But no, it is a familiar formula that we've seen throughout even just the first five chapters of Genesis. That they saw 
these sons of God saw and they took. What did Eve do? She saw and she took. Now, this might whet your appetite just a little bit, but who? Who they? Who these sons of God? Who are they? There is a ton of research where on one side you have super ultra uh, you know, aggressive, like this is who they are. And then on the other side, you have the counter view where they are super ultra aggressive and say, nope, this is who they are. Those people are dumb. And they both are kind of like, well, they're, they're all dumb. So I want to hold this with an open hand. But uh, I'll say that this phrase and the way that it's factored here in the, the Hebrew is used just a handful of times. Uh, in the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, And in each occurrence in Daniel and I believe in Job, they refer to angels as the sons of God. Or perhaps, again, just holding it with an open hand, maybe Moses is using a different phraseology to address, uh, address men. That as sons of Adam born in his image, who also was born in God's image, these are sons of God. Hold it with an open hand. I think what seems more plausible is that these sons of God do actually, in fact, refer to angels. Now, there are views within uh, paganism, within all kinds of ancient Canaanite uh, theology, that all of our problems as a species are actually because angels, the fallen angels, caused it to be so. Countless times... Countless scholars far more wise than me, and I agree with them. The Bible doesn't let us off the hook like that. The Bible clearly in Genesis chapter 2 and later, or Genesis chapter 3 and later in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle says that we, we read in Isaiah 53, the prophet says we, not the angels, we all like sheep have gone astray. There is a uh, judgment on us. We're not separated from the judgment of sin. We are active participants in the depravity of sin, both in our nature and in our actions. So while I think most plausibly these are fallen angels inhabiting the earth and taking for themselves uh, attractive women from, from mankind and having children with them, uh, that doesn't let humanity off of the hook for the sin in which they are responsible. And again, the reality and thrust is that they, the sons of God, are sinning grievously. Enough for God to step into the narrative and speak a proclamation over them. Again, verses 1 and 2 don't seem to make that extremely apparent. But the Lord in verse 3 gives this reminder that for a short time, uh, His Spirit will no longer abide in man. Again, there are many views in this. Does this mean that the timeline of a human uh, is limited to 120 years? There is also thought that uh, God is speaking in this way, that his judgment would come after 120 years to wipe off the face of the earth. Uh, I, I don't know. could be both. But I think it's clear that the rampant unrighteousness and sin is causing God to, uh, I don't even want to say adjust, it's causing him extreme sadness and grief in the way that Moses describes later in this section. 
but as if to not, uh, you know, to, to just let us kind of ease into this text, we've gone from fallen angels uh, having intercourse with the daughters of men uh, to then uh, a hundred-year proclamation, what that means. Uh, let's just go to uh, another being, another life form called the Nephilim, because why not? Uh, we're already in it this deep, so let's just, let's just stay in it. Uh, Catherine doesn't know that I'm preaching on something called Nephilim, but given that she loves Winnie the Pooh, I'm guaranteed she would say, <laughs> Heffalumps? No. Uh, Nephilim. Verse 4, were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. The, the translation of Nephilim uh, is, is both kind of rendered as fallen, uh, but it's also uh, rendered as giants. Uh, these were large uh, people. There's a crazy theory that I read about that doesn't need to be in my sermon, but if you want to know about it, you can ask me about it, and I'll tell you about it. It's crazy. Um, but the understanding of this is trying to factor in these Nephilim who were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they had children of them. What Descriptors that you're kind of like, all right, you don't really need that in the story, but okay. All of this activity is leading to an understanding that what's going on, verses 1 through 4, is not okay. For these fallen angels are, giving, uh, are given dominion of some things. And when they take for themselves women, that is outside of their dominion that God has given them. For these women, there is also an understanding. This is outside of the realm of normal behavior. And what does God say in verse 5? This rampant sin and, and rebellion needs to be adjusted. So in God's response, Yahweh sees. Now, if you're like, Yahweh, you just said God, then you said Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God that he has then entered into the scene through Moses' writing as the one who interacts with mankind. So when God speaks things into existence in Genesis 1 and 2, it is the divine, the El or Elohim, and now when he is speaking uh, personally and presently with mankind, he does so as Yahweh, same God, same triune God that we worship today. But because the text uses Yahweh, I want to use that as well. But if you want to just tell me out and say, God sees, that's fine, because you're right. Yahweh sees, Yahweh feels, and Yahweh judges. Verses 5 through 7. First, Yahweh sees. He is a God who is transcendent. He is omnipresent. He sees all. He is sovereign over all things. There is not one thing or activity that gets past his purview. So when God sees this activity, what he sees is not good. What he's created, what he's intended to be good because of the fall of sin is no longer good. What's taken root at the fall has now grown rampant through Cain and his line and throughout all of humanity. Sin and unrighteousness are the commanding motivations. The commanding 
motivations. The Lord sees the wickedness of man. It was great, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I love the emphasis that Derek brought as he read those things. We're talking about ultimates. We're not talking about, yeah, it was some, sometimes kind of bad. Like on a scale of bad, it was like a four. But then sometimes it was like a seven. No, all the time, continually, every thought of their mind rooted in their heart was evil continually. I think that's hard for us to understand. Because while we might think that we are moral in some senses, and I hope that that would be true, I hope that our morality is not for morality's sake, but is rather rooted in a transformed heart uh, of Christ. But in this, uh, we see that... uh, while we might be moral, we do realize there are some times where my thoughts, where my words, where my actions are not so moral. They're sinful. And I see the sinful uh, rampage, just to use something so, so uh, bold, we see where that could go. Whether it be anger, whether it be frustration, whether it be stress, whether it be any of those different things, we can see even in our own hearts that there is a sinful seed at play that we must put to death. As one prominent theologian says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We must put these things to death. And in this day, that is not what they're doing. Every intention of the thoughts of their heart were evil continually. Imagine what that would look like. We may be like those older men having breakfast together and say, man, these headlines are insane. Sometimes rightfully so. But we're talking about not just an isolated incident where a group of people or groups of people, we're talking about creation in its entirety was evil continually from the heart that every intention now you're like well that seems a little extreme we're talking about the eyes of god are making this pronouncement and he does not err i think it's a reminder of how grievous our sin is in the eyes of god we might put our own pronouncement yeah it's bad but it's not like that bad it is bad It is worthy to where the sinless Son of God stepped into our shoes, took our sin and shame upon the cross, and nailed it, casting aside all of our debt, that if we would fall on Him, clinging to Him, trusting Him, that His reputation, His work, is what redeems us. That's the cost of our sin. Jesus died in our place for our sin. It is that bad. And it is that bad in Genesis chapter 6. But not only does Yahweh see, Yahweh from what he sees, he also feels. We see throughout the New Testament in the person and work and ministry of Jesus, we see that there are things that when he sees, he has an emotional response. In Jesus, we see how God acts and feels. We've talked about at different times, the gentle and lowly come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for my heart, right? Where we see into the inward being of Christ's heart, the heart of God. So these responses are not outside of the realm of normal activity for God. 
Jesus, looking out on the crowd, has compassion on them. He says, guys, how are we going to feed them? Likewise, as Yahweh sees this rampant sin and rebellion, he feels the ESV that I'm reading from this morning, as well as the Christian standard, uses the term regrets. That God regrets. The New American Standard Bible says that he is sorry. That God is sorry. There's an understanding that what has happened, he does not like or approve of. Now, we need to be careful when we put on these emotions that we know in only a human form onto God. Here's how one uh, author explains this expression. Regretting need not imply that he was surprised. Why would he not be surprised? He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. There is nothing from the beginning of time till the end of time that he doesn't know and doesn't have supreme jurisdiction over. So he's not taken by surprise of this. But the author continues to say, you can know something is going to happen, yet still be saddened when it does. So how can the God of the universe who spoke creation into existence, who's omniscient, uh, omnipotent, sovereign over all things, regret having done something? Because he's God. He's God. Yahweh sees, Yahweh feels, and lastly, Yahweh judges. His pronouncement on what he sees, he says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. We'll get into the flood in the next week or so. Uh, But the reality is that just as all creation is flawed and unrighteous in need of judgment, so too must the punishment fit the crime. I don't personally believe in a regionally located flood. I believe in a global flood. For God says, I will blot them out. It's almost the same things that we've seen from the lines of Cain. That in their lineages, it only goes to a certain point, but it doesn't give any hope for eternal rest. It just ends and they died. No duration of lifespan, no foresight into thinking there's any hope for them. The same is true for those who die apart from trusting in this God that he will, in fact, blot them out. And it's not just mankind, it's all of creation. That it continues to say, the creeping things and the birds of the heavens. I think sometimes we don't understand the enormity of the flood. Because think about what God's created at this point. He's created all of the swarming things in the sea. And it says he's created all of the birds of the heavens. Well, if birds of the heavens can fly, why would they need to be destroyed in a flood? That's got to be some insane type rain and flooding that continued, as we'll see through uh, Genesis chapter 6 and 7, that it did persist on the earth for a very long time, enough to wipe out all of these things as well as sinful humanity. 
But we don't just see Genesis 6, 1 through 7, uh, rampant sin and unrighteousness. We do have this small glimmer of hope in verse 8. And here's where we get to the favor of God. Rampant sin and unrighteousness and the favor of God. Verse 8. When it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of God, it doesn't mean that Noah was seeking it out. Noah wasn't trying to collect these achievements to be able to be blessed by God. No, what do we see later in verse 9? These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. What quality was it that Noah did? Nothing really. He walked with God. By faith, Noah walked with God. He believed God when he said, a flood is coming, judgment is coming, respond and act by building this ark. Noah wasn't seeking it out. Let us remind ourselves of the rampant sin and unrighteousness that's prevalent on the earth throughout creation. And yet God had no responsibility to save any, any, not even one, In fact, complete and total destruction is what was deserved. But aren't you glad that's not what happened? Favor in this Hebrew phrase is often allotted to grace. That this favor that Noah found was unmerited, just like the grace we find in Christ Jesus. That there's nothing in us, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that by grace you were saved through faith. And this was not of yourselves, so that no one can boast. This favor that Noah found was not of himself. This favor was given by God. Aren't you glad that in Christ, God doesn't give us what we deserve? The punishment and eternity separated from him, but gives us grace. Gives us grace in salvation that we might escape destruction and dwell eternally with him. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. This is the hope of protection in destruction, the hope of a Savior who has gone to the uttermost to redeem those who would call out and cry to him. This is the favor of a good and gracious God. There's a now passed away pastor theologian by the name of R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul was a Presbyterian pastor, theologian, phenomenal guy, would recommend everything but his baptism resources to you. Um, but he was asked a question. Somebody asked him in a, in a Q&A format, uh, Brother R.C., uh, why, why does God punish sin like this? Like, why is, why is he so unfair? Why did he cast Adam and Eve outside of the garden? Why did he do these different things? And he gave this most profound response. And I encourage you to look it up because it's great. He says, he just grabs his microphone and looks out with disgust and says, what's wrong with you people? The transcendent God who spoke everything into being set one rule We, as fallen humanity, broke that rule. What's wrong with him? What's wrong with us? God has given us 
favor in Christ Jesus. The same fate that awaits those who sought refuge outside of the ark is true of us. If we seek to find refuge in anything else apart from Christ, maybe it's a home, maybe it's in uh, some, some type of work, some type of service, even within our own local church, if we're seeking to find refuge in anything like that, it will be rubbish. It will be burnt away on that last day, as will you be. Trust in Christ. Walk with Him. God provides grace in Jesus Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Noah, as the righteous man, blameless in his generation, points us onward to the righteous and perfect man, Christ Jesus. So the judgment of the flood fell upon all creation. Nothing was spared. The judgment of sin and death fell upon Christ. And he took the full penalty of our sin, the sin of all creation to the cross, therefore reconciling us and all of creation through himself. Where Noah builds an ark providing refuge for his family, Jesus is the ark. Jesus is the ark upon which all who cling to him escape destruction. So if you are an unbeliever this morning, let my call be the same call of Jesus in Matthew 24. Trust in Christ. Trust in Him. Turn from your sin. Make Him your Lord and Savior. Make Him the boss of your life. Now for those who are believers, I have three quick application points. First, flee from the ways of this world. This is a New Testament theme. It's, it's a biblical theme, right? A people called by his own possession that we would be what? Set apart, blameless, that we would be like Noah. But more than that, that we would be like Jesus. That as his followers, we would flee from the ways of the world. And in so doing, we don't just flee from something, we flee to something. That as we flee from the ways of the world, we flee to Christ. Run to him, the way of the righteous man. Walk in his footsteps. Trust in him that when you get off the way, he did not. And it is because of him and not you that your salvation is banked. Secondly, take every thought captive unto Christ. Every thought in Genesis chapter 6 was evil all the time. The intentions of their heart regularly was evil. It was sinful. It was wicked. And we may be able to put that blue ribbon uh, on our side and say, hey, I'm, I, I may be bad, but I'm not like that bad. I have like some good times. As believers, that's not the option. Our option is to take every thought captive unto Christ. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 says these things so that we would have victory. We see in our text this morning that humanity was ruled by the intentions of their hearts to do evil continually. We are prone to these things too. And we must take every thought captive. How do we do this? By the renewing of our mind, by being in God's word.
We sift our thoughts. We evaluate our intentions. And when we've done that, let me just kind of parse out what, what I mean by that. You know, when you're, when you're trying to sift either, uh, I won't say flour, but for me, it's like when I do noodles, I want to make sure that I get the things I want, the noodles, and not the things I don't want, the noodle juice. That's gross. We do the same thing. When a, when a sinful thought enters our mind, we ought to sift those things out according to God's word. Is this something I should be dwelling on, Philippians says? No, it shouldn't. Dwell on the things that are above, where Christ is. Take those things captive. Sift those things out by the spirit that dwells in us and the word that has been implanted in our hearts in that way. Secondly, evaluate our intentions. The way in which we do that is we can, as fallen human beings, have uh, we can have good activities, we can have good works, but our intentions are so rotten. That's why Jesus offers this pronouncement of you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are so far from me because I just want to keep I just want to keep your commands and make sure that everybody else keeps your commands. And that's really all I'm mad about. But you're not keeping my commands either. Your hearts are an open grave. Your throats are an open grave. We must sift our thoughts and evaluate our intentions to see is this coming from a heart that's been transformed by the gospel of Christ? Or is it our flesh that needs to be put to death? Brothers and sisters, if you're like, man, I've been acting out of the flesh a lot lately. You're in good company in one sense, but that's not a good enough response to stay there. Because the Apostle Paul, when he starts talking about the war that wages within him, causing him to do things he doesn't want to do, and yet can't do the things he wants to do, what does he say? Wretched man that I am. May we sift our thoughts and evaluate our intentions and give it to the Lord. When we've done that, we've taken that to him, let us go before him and pray just as the psalmist says, Lord, even make known the hidden intentions and desires of my heart, that if there are things in me that I need to confess that I would do it. May we do those things. May we flee from the ways of this world and may we take every thought captive unto Christ. Thirdly and finally, I gave a fair warning, so I think we're good here. Wake up. Wake up. Whether you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ or whether I, I, I feel somewhat safe to, to just be able to say, whether you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not coming up with the correct wording. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, wake up. You either need to wake up for yourself and taking real responsibility for a world that is... Uh, damned to hell. You need to wake up in that way, and you need to just wake up in being able to say, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. And brothers and sisters, this is just as much for me as it is for you. I hope to grow in evangelism because I get the reality that Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 37 and 39. Here's what Jesus says about this day in Noah's time. Here's what he says. Let me get there. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 37 through 39, Jesus talking uh, to those outside of the temple in Jerusalem says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. 
so will be the coming of the Son of Man. God, in His divine kindness, gives warning in Noah's day. Judgment's coming. So, too, do we have warning. Jesus is coming. And the opportunity for repentance and trusting in Him is drawing near day by day, minute by minute, second by second. We have amazingly good news that while earth seems to be unraveling and as some would say going to hell in a handbasket we have hope in christ jesus wake up we don't know when this will happen for us we don't know when it will happen for our neighbors that don't know christ we don't know when it will happen to our family that don't know christ may we wake up And share this good news. We don't say take refuge in the ark. Follow brother Noah. We say take refuge in the perfect man. Christ Jesus. Who on his life. If you stake all you have. You will not be found wanting. For you will have everything you need. If the message of our story this morning. Were a headline in the paper being read by the gentleman. In our opening introduction. It would read something to the tune of this. The worst of sinners. Pardoned by the grace of God. For it is the work of Christ that atones, forgives, cleanses, removes even the worst of sin. Saving the worst of sinners, trust in him. For he he will return to judge all of humanity. Maybe today you're here and you think, I am that worst of sinners. I trust in Christ, but I just can't shake this. Maybe I should be caught up in the flood. Maybe I should. I don't know if that's you. But let me just say, Christ came for you. And if you've clung to him, there's no better place for you to be. Just be reminded by his love for you. He doesn't look at you that way. And because God the Father sees you now through the perfect work of the Son, if you have clung and trusted to him, He doesn't see you that way either. He sees you as an adopted and beloved child. So let's walk in that way. Let's flee from the things of the world. Let's let's just walk in these things. Let's wake up. Let's do these things by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray.